and welcome back to The Juice and the Squeeze. I'm Julia Strand, here as always with my co-host, Jonathan Peel. Hey, Jonathan, it's been a while. Hey, Julia, it sure has. <laughs> that, uh, I've, I, I've, I've missed I've missed it. Um, it's like we've been real people having big, busy summers and not just podcast machines. Well, the funny thing is that um, back in, in June, we actually had a discussion and we said, you know, should we take the summer off from the podcast? And we said, no, you know, we, we both have travel and other stuff going on, but like, we're going to work it out. And, and then, and now it's already the end of August and uh, we couldn't manage to work it out. <laughs> so I don't know well, what that says, but another, another way of framing that is we prioritized other things that were going on in our lives that maybe were more important, like trying to make ourselves less stressed and burnt out than we were back in june that well that's true and also just by happenstance i think you and i just had like perfectly opposite schedules so whenever yeah. i was free on friday you weren't and and, and vice versa or whatever um so what, what did you what have Here you done are. for the last three months <laughs> um lots of stuff um i my my main goal for the summer was to feel less burnt out and broken in September than I did in June. You know, the last academic year was hard on, on all of us. Um, and so I've been working hard uh, toward that. I mean, I also like had students and did research and all that, but really tried to prioritize, um, uh, you know, getting myself back in a place mentally where I'd be excited to go back in the classroom in the fall. Can I, so th- yeah. th- 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 I think we're entitled to like a little bit of extra follow-up today because it's been, it's been so long. So like mm-hmm. that's not what you just said sounds great, but also how did you do that? Uh, you know what I did? So, so I have this wonderful group of friends and we were kind of talking about who are, um, about half our academics, but most of whom I have like pretty flexible, you know, more academics. Whatever, um, have have you know some flexibility over their schedule and, and and what things look like, which is of course a tremendous lucky privilege. Um, and and as we were talking about going into the summer, we decided that the motto of the summer was going to be priority one fun P one F. And there have certainly been days where the priority has been like you know working on papers and stuff, but uh, I tried to set it up so that when I looked at my schedule for the you know upcoming week. Um, I didn't say, what are all the work things that absolutely have to happen and where can I slot in fun? I tried to say, what are all the fun things that I really want to accomplish? And then where does the work fit in around that? Which mm-hmm. is like totally the opposite of how I basically always do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I did is I prioritized fun. And I fully recognize that being able to do that is an incredible privilege and not everyone is in a place where that is possible or makes sense or whatever. Um, but I... Um, I, I felt like I really needed it after, I mean, and I know lots of people feel like they need it and don't get to have it. So I, I just want to recognize that this is a very lucky thing I get to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was really nice. Um, I, I feel like, you know, we've all had some, many people that I've talked to have had um, uh, kind of soul searching in the last year or two about like, what are our priorities and does doing research on listening effort really matter given the state of the world and all the things that there are going on and, and all of that. Um, and, and the way that I was kind of thinking about it is like, I'm clearly going to keep doing my job to the best of my abilities because I really like it and want to. Um, but the world is not going to be markedly different if there is an additional paper that talks about issues with measurement of listening effort mm-hmm. tasks. Mm-hmm. 
next year. Um, but it is going to be markedly different if I am burnt out and broken and sad and hate my job. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, the world may not, but like my world certainly will. Right. Um, and so at, at this point in my career, I'm, I'm really thinking about like building a good life. Boy, this is not what we intended to talk about today. This got deep fast. <laughs> it's um, important though, I uh, think. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. About like, you know, um, I, I'm thinking a lot more about, about balance and mm-hmm. like in the, in the run up before getting tenure, I feel like it was, it was all just got to do all this work and then you're going to get tenure and everything will change and blah, blah, blah. And now it doesn't have that in three years, in two years, in one year, in six months. Now it's just like, I'm looking forward at like the rest of my career and I'm thinking about, okay, like what, you know, what do I want my legacy to be? How do I mm-hmm. want this to work? And mm-hmm. and now it feels like more of a, a marathon than a sprint. No, mm-hmm. more of like a beautiful scenic walk through scenery I enjoy mm-hmm. than, than a sprint. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I want to make sure that I am like, positioning myself to not burn out and have to do something different in five years. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I want to make sure I can, I can keep this up. Um, and so I, I think one of the wonderful perks about academia is that we have, you know, this kind of cyclical life where we get chunks of time to think about, you know, like chunks of time, like sabbatical, like summers to think about, okay, let's take a deep breath, get our feet back underneath us, think about the future. Um, and so for me, a big part of the summer was, just getting myself in a headspace where I'd be excited to go back to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, while still doing some work, but you know, less than, sure. less than usual. Did, did it work? Yeah. Not I mean, that you're done yet. We still got, we've still got right. some summer I was left. Say, Carlton but, doesn't go back until yeah. mid September. So yeah. we still have almost a month. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it has been working. I mean, I've definitely been having a ton of fun. I definitely do not feel as burnt out as I did in June for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, the state of the world and the country. And there are a lot of things that are kind of weighing on my mind and mm-hmm. thinking about my enthusiasm for, for going back. Um, but as I've started doing some stuff, like, you know, scheduling when lab meetings are going to be and writing to the students who are in my class to tell them, you know, what section they've been assigned to, whatever, what to register for. Um, I have a little glimmers of like, Oh man, I'm going to be in a classroom. Mm-hmm. There's going to be other human beings in the classroom. We're going to get to talk and laugh about stuff. Um, and that I'm, I'm really excited to be, you know, like be back in person and, and, and get to like teach the way that I signed up for, right. Like mm-hmm, the, the way mm-hmm. that I want to. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's working. Good. I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to hear that. How about you? Summer highlights? I, I don't know. I guess it is a highlight. Um, so we, we moved this summer, um, mm-hmm. which I forget if I mentioned that cause you know, we were sort of like thinking about about this uh in in the spring but it all happened you know when when you and i haven't been talking so um uh the housing this is stuff that was so boring to me until like the last few years so i'm sorry for all of you who this doesn't apply to but um the housing market has been really crazy and so it, we've been we've been thinking about moving uh we're still in st louis we moved about a half mile but um a bigger house in a different neighborhood and um some uh, anyway so so we were thinking about this and then the housing market was crazy so we thought well this is a great time to to sell our house it'll be really easy to sell it which is true it also means it's a horrible time to buy a house because it was like super competitive and uh, houses were going for way over asking price and all this but we said okay like that is the future that's our future problem like right now let's just sell the house and then we will 
you know, figure out buying a house and that might be really stressful and stuff, but one thing at a time. Uh, and I won't, I won't bore you or everyone with all the details, but we, we did sell our house. And in fact, we bought, we made an offer, which was accepted and bought the first and only house that we looked at, uh, as buyers, um, which was not the plan. And actually crazily enough, our, um, the house that we just sold, which was the first house we ever bought, we did the same thing. And that one was a little bit more like we had been kind of waiting and looking. And then this one came up and it was a good, a good fit. The current one, we're like, we'll just go take a look because we should start the process, but there's no rush and we're not going to find anything. And it kind of, it ticked a lot of boxes, uh, uh, being in the neighborhood we wanted and it had a, a bigger yard and, and so on. And so we just went for it. So that actually, um, went remarkably well. Um, we, let the, you know, for our first house, we went from an apartment to a house and didn't have any kids. And now we were going from a house to a house and have three kids. And I feel like that like made it exponentially more um, stressful. So just the whole process was like very all consuming for like four months. Um, and we're, anyway, so we're in the new house. Everything is still in boxes. So there, there will be a lot to do, but we're kind of over the, over the main hump and, and we like the house and don't, don't regret it yet. So, um, so that was all good, but I feel like the summer was just a blur, uh, and it was good not to have teaching stuff because that lowered one part of stress. And then like every spare ounce of energy went to managing this whole other weird, uh, you know, weird house thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't really feel refreshed. I feel like I survived. Uh, which, which is, which is fine. I'm, I'm happy that I survived, but, um, yeah, not quite refreshed. Survived and did a, did a big personal thing that needed doing. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and, one. and that was yeah. good. And, and I will say, um, um, we didn't really know, well, you, you never know until you live somewhere, you don't know what the neighborhood is like, but we've already met like a whole bunch of neighbors who are all super nice and we feel very welcome. And, um, so far it seems like a great fit. And there are like, there are other kids on the street that are similar in age to our kids. And, um, a lot of stuff seems to be working out really well. So, um, yeah, so, so far so good. This is me knocking on, on, on wood. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Um, we should uh, also mention, so, can I just put oh. it, put in a plug, um, way back when we actually recorded podcasts in the spring, we did three about teaching. And, and so if anyone has been putting off class planning or class prep until now, uh, if you want to go back and listen to them, if you missed them, um, it's episodes 38, 39, and 40, um, which we'll link to in the show notes. And that's all the... I don't even remember what we talked about, Julia. Syllabi and big picture planning and, and a whole bunch of stuff. Check them out. And today we are going to be talking about a new um, a project that I've been working on that I'm eager to get more more feedback on. Um, that is something I think anyone who works in research, um, but even people who don't work in research, um, like in, anybody who works in anything, um, may. Might, might be relevant for. Um, and it is about making mistakes and, and, and how to not make mistakes. Um, so uh, longtime listeners of the show will know that I, um, that I made a mistake once, just the once. No, that, um, that <laughs> I had a big kind of career-changing moment in which I found a mistake in one of my published uh, um, research papers um, that completely changed the outcome of the study and led to 
a lot of heartache and having to the, the paper wasn't retracted, but I, uh, it was it was updated and revised based based on the mistake. Um, and going through that process um, got me started in thinking about mistakes in research and um, how we make them and why we make them. Um, it also made me start having a lot of conversations with a lot of other people about mistakes that they have made in research, um, which have been somewhat heartening because uh, it turns out I'm not the only one who's ever made a mistake. Um, and, and in fact, um, there is a great quote by, by NAP colleagues from 2006, humans, even diligent, meticulous, and highly trained professionals make mistakes. And this is something that um, has really kind of become more more apparent to me over the years, um, that, that people mess up. Like, all people mess up, no mm-hmm. matter how much they're trying not to or how well-trained they are or, or anything like that. And so I, I, I realized that although I've gotten a lot of training over the years in a lot of things how to analyze data, how to write an IRB application, how to write a grant. Like there are lots of things about my job that I do um, that I've been been trained on. Um, I, I People don't really talk about how to avoid making mistakes or how to catch mistakes before they cause real problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to come up with a way to make people talk more about that and figure out how to mess up less and help other people mess up less and like maybe hopefully spare other people the heartache that I went through um, in, you know, in, in publishing a mistake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Jonathan, let me ask you in, in all of your training, like, is this something that ever came up, you know, in, in lab meetings when you were a trainee or in classes or anything like that? No, not that, not that I can remember. I mean, there was a little bit of a, a, a sense of, um, you know, you should like, quote unquote, be careful not to make mistakes and maybe, mm-hmm. quote unquote, double check stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it was mostly, uh, you know, I mean, usually uh, in, in the labs that I was in and probably in my lab too, most projects have like a lead researcher. Um, mm-hmm. And it was kind of assumed that that person took responsibility for like, not making mistakes. But there was no like guidance in like how you do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, same. And I think I think that that is the norm. Um, so to to kind of uh, fill that void, I've created uh, what's called error tight exercises for lab groups to prevent research mistakes. You can read the whole thing for yourself and check it out at errortight.com. That's E-R-R-O-R-T-I-G-H-T.com. Um, and it is a very short document. The current working version is, is under 10 pages. Um, and it kind of talks through exercises that, that lab groups can do to help avoid making mistakes and to, to catch mistakes when, when they happen. So to write this, um, I read a lot about um, error prevention and detection in other fields. So it turns out that there, uh, people, have, people have thought about this and written about this a lot in other realms, um, especially in, in medicine um, you know, how do we avoid amputating the wrong leg and things like that? Um, and, and also in, um, like in the financial world, how do we avoid, I don't know, subtracting the gross income from the taxable, whatever. Mm-hmm. Clearly, you see, I know a lot about that. <laughs> that that's a common um, problem, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. 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 It's all the time. <laughs> um, 
And, uh, and, and so then I, I thought about how we can apply those to academic research. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I won't go through everything that, that we talk about, everything that, 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 that I wrote about. Um, but the idea is that, that um, lab groups can get together and read through this and then think about the places in their workflow, the places in their, like, uh, um, in, in their project workflow uh, that, that could possibly be error prone and think about ways to avoid putting those, uh, to, to avoid making those errors mm-hmm. um, and, and coming up with like specific systems and methods for avoiding those errors. Um, and in part, uh, part of um, putting all of this together too was just reading about all kinds of mistakes that people have made in research. Uh, and so some of those were, you know, personal stories that I've heard from people. Some of those were blog posts that people um, have written. Uh, but as I put more and more of them together, I realized that I, I had thought about this as let's find places in the process that are error prone and came out of it realizing like you can make a mistake in every single part mm-hmm. of the process. <laughs> right. Like you, we shouldn't mm-hmm. think about what's error prone. We should think about like they're all error prone. And, um, and, and it may be that depending on the kind of research you do, some are more or less error prone. Were there any examples that were particularly surprising to you? I mean, I guess mostly in like psychology research, um, or were they all, were there, did they all seem kind of like, I don't know, expected at least in hindsight? Yeah, no. So, so there were some, um, there were some that I read about that, that, that I wouldn't ever have thought of. And I was like, boy, we don't have a system in place in our lab to avoid that. We should, we should think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, one that I read about is somebody was running participants using a particular computer and somebody else used that computer to program something else or work on something else. But as part of their work on that, they had to change one of the settings about like the screen resolution mm-hmm. and then they forgot to change it back. So then the participants that were run in that room on that computer after the screen resolution changed got something that it was some kind of like visual perception study or something where the screen resolution really mattered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so those data weren't usable anymore. So if you are running a study on lots of different computers and you realize after the fact that 20 participants have been run, um, but, but uh, 20 participants who have been run don't have usable data then you really want to make sure you have a record of who was running which room, mm-hmm. right? So you mm-hmm. can like throw away people on this computer, but but not on this computer or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was one where I was like, boy, yeah, like we, we don't currently have a policy in place that like you shouldn't work on other projects on the computers that we collect data on, mm-hmm. but maybe we should, like maybe mm-hmm. we should separate the running computers out from like the coding and working on computers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, like a, like a, a, technological thing that could potentially mess up a lot of data. Um, another one is, has to do with, um, um, this was like a, a story that, that someone, someone shared with me, um, was um, mislabeling, um, uh, manually changing the names of column headers and mixing up two of them, mm-hmm. right? So uh, one is supposed to be, um, uh, let me think of things that are in the same unit so you wouldn't immediately see it. You know, like, well, I mean, well, uh, actually, one, one, uh, another one that I have seen is um, 
people inadvertently coding the participant ID number as age and then thinking you see a really big effect of age, but you're seeing a bit, you know, mm-hmm. anyway, mm-hmm. anytime your, 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 um, your column headers are wrong and you analyze those data, you're analyzing the wrong numbers. And then, you know, who knows what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are all like, uh, the, these are not, um, these are not questionable research practices in the, in the sense that we typically talk about them, right. In terms of like, trying to get statistically significant results or, you know, uh, only only reporting a subset of our analyses or things like this. Um, these are what Jeff Router and colleagues called in a paper about errors in psychology. These are bonehead moves where you just screw up. You just, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. do something wrong. Um, and and one, one of the things that, um, that I have liked about talking with people about error type is that uh, there are some things about science that are contentious right? Like how sh- should we be using Bayesian statistics instead of frequent statistics? You know, like there's some mm-hmm. things that are contentious. Um, but everyone can agree that like, it would be really nice to screw up less, right? <laughs> it would be really great to, to make fewer mistakes. We uh-huh. can all agree that that would be good for science. Um, and so having all these conversations with people about <laughs> making mistakes and the frequency with which they occur also is kind of unnerving because we're only talking about the ones that we've caught. Mm-hmm. Right. Or the ones mm-hmm. people have been willing to share, but surely there have been others, you know, beyond that. So, so Jonathan, have you, have there been, have you, have you been privy to these kinds of bonehead moves um, in your, <laughs> sure. in, in yeah, your own I'm, research or have you heard stories? I mean, sh- yes, uh, undoubtedly we have. I'm, I can't think of a great, like, I'm not aware of any that were published. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, if you don't, check everything who knows what you know anyway but there may well be stuff that um that slipped through but yeah these these are yeah i mean these are so uh, there's so many different levels to this that i I like i feel like on the one hand there is just the philosophy of like you know everyone has a different thing that they study everyone has a different workflow and so i think you know i kind of got two things from you know when i when i look at at error tight one is um, on a bigger level is like, how do you go about figuring this out in your own lab? Right. And so it's mm-hmm. more just like a philosophy of thinking about what could go wrong and what can you do to, to catch it. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a tiny part of this that we do, which I, I got from, um, um, Jeff Router some time ago, which I think I'm sure I've mentioned, but in our lab meeting, we, we have a little bullet point on our agenda for, for adverse events from the past week. And those could be, big or small. And the point is not to name and shame, but first of all, it's that I need to make sure to know about them. And as my lab has gotten bigger, sometimes people forget to tell me. Um, but then the, the the more fun part of this is then you also include a discussion on like, okay, how could we prevent that from happening again? Uh, and so, for example, actually the only, not the only, like one very clear adverse event is we had a participant trip going into a sound booth because there was a step up and um, they were older and and they, they fell and they were okay. But like, obviously this is a very adverse event. And so we, you know, we had a whole long discussion and we kind of changed how we walked people into the sound booth and made sure that, you know, made sure it was safer. And so that was like a really good outcome in that we, mm-hmm. we actually made stuff better. So, so there's like the process part of it, but then 
Um, I mean, you and I do kind of, you know, similar enough research that all of your examples are like really relevant for my lab too. So then I also appreciate the fact that I, you know, I think your intent is not to provide a list that every lab can use, but as it turns out, a lot of labs could like use most of your list and be in pretty good shape. Yeah. You know, things yeah. about programming, um, presentation and your stimuli and, and how do you analyze data and stuff like this is like really common across labs. And it's just helpful, like from a brainstorming perspective, instead of starting from a, a blank page is to have like a lot of specific things that maybe I, I thought of, or maybe I didn't think of, you know? Right. Um, am I remembering right, Jonathan, didn't you have maybe in grad school or something, uh, a thing where you forgot to push record oh, yes. and ended up not having, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, we lost all the data for an entire semester long project because I, I, I pushed record, but on that, it was, it was an old cassette player and you had to push record and play together or something. I don't know. Uh-huh, well, anyway, yeah. I managed the tape was moving, but it was not recording because I pushed it in the wrong order or something. So yes. And, and I never checked until the end of the semester. So I had this really nice um, container of really well labeled tapes that were all blank. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, you know, so making these kinds of mistakes, um, it, can the consequences can be can be like minor um i would call the losing a semester of data probably very frustrating wasted money wasted time all of that um you know but also like it goes all the way up to having to retract a paper which is mm-hmm. of course a really um unfortunate outcome mm-hmm. um i mean maybe it shouldn't be that's a whole other conversation but right um yeah, so, so the idea um, behind the project was to give people a bunch of examples of mistakes that other people have made or mistakes that, you know, things that can possibly go wrong at lots of different steps in the research process um, so that they could sit down together as a lab and talk through, you know, in their particular case, um, which of those things are likely to be an issue, which of those things don't apply, and then and then what can, what can they do? So um, I focused on both how to avoid making errors and then also how to catch the errors that will still inevitably happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of the like kind of key uh, philosophies or guiding principles have to do um, with, with standardization. So making sure that there is kind of a standard way to save files and, uh, you know, t- talk to participants and there's a kind of a, a consistent way of, um, keeping track of exactly what you're doing, right? It's much harder to kind of check people's work later if you're trying to figure out if the data file you should look at is the one that's called project data final or project data final final two. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, like having having like standard naming conventions is one kind of easy way to make sure that you're actually like dealing with with the appropriate appropriate like file or or data set. Mm And then in, in addition to standardization, um, one of the other things that, that I recommend is, um, is kind of cultivating a culture in your lab of looking for problems. So the idea that the, the quality of the work that your lab puts out should be a shared responsibility and not just the responsibility of like the one person who is, you know, taking like uh, on point, taking charge of that project. Mm-hmm. Um so earlier, Jonathan, we were talking about like in each lab, the idea is that like there's one person who is responsible for the quality of the project or I don't remember exactly what mm-hmm. you said, but you know, mm-hmm. there's like one person who's in charge of making sure that, that it's that it's all good. Um, and, and of course, the way that work always 
falls out is that somebody is is the most in charge. Um, but but uh, the the recommendation that that I make in this and I try to foster in my lab is that even if one person is primarily in charge, then it is their responsibility to make sure they are recruiting other people to be checking their work consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I I don't think it should ever be the case that something should be published where only one person has looked at the data, written the code, checked to make sure that the numbers in the analysis match the ones in the manuscript. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Because anytime only one person is involved, uh, it, like that, that is that is a real weak link. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so having having lots of people be responsible, or at least you know more than one person be responsible for for checking things, can help mitigate some of those errors caused by just you know one person messing up and, and not noticing. Um, I think especially because when we do say, oh, I'm going to write this code and I'll be careful when I write and then I'll double check after I do it. Um, we are busy people and double checking carefully is hard. And, um, and you know, if, if especially if the results turn out the way that you want, there is not a great incentive to like actually check every line super carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even if we say we're double checking, I think if all of the incentives are, as soon as I finish double checking, I can do something else. And I, and I'm pretty sure I did it right the first time and the results turned out the way that I want. Um, you know, there's, there's not a, that much of an incentive to actually find mistakes. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so, so I, I think, yeah, have, having the quality of work be a shared responsibility, having multiple people check things, um, can, can be a, can be a, a really useful approach. Um, it also, were you going to say something? Yeah, I, sorry. Well, so, uh, you know, one of the challenges and maybe you could you know, just to like a sidebar on that is, um, sometimes one person in a lab will figure out how to do an analysis or be trained in something and know how to do it. And they're the only person who knows how to do it in the lab. Right. And so, I think, you know, at least for, for my lab, that's definitely a barrier to getting multiple people to check it. It's not, um, you know, for some things, it's like, oh, we have four people who know how to um, to do a thing. And so one person does it. Any of the other three could do it. Now two people have checked it. And we just have to make sure that that happens. But if only mm-hmm. one person knows how to run a particular analysis, then like, well, who else is going to check it? So either... Um, you know, you have to train someone from scratch to do it and make sure they're like independent enough to know how to do it. Or I always have to be the other checker, assuming I know everything, how to do stuff, which isn't always true. Or we have to go get someone like from a different lab and like ask them for a favor to like, can you look over this code and, um, and check it? So I wonder, have you run into that at all? Or like, how do you, um, how do you manage that? Yeah. So, um, so, uh, this is going to probably be different for, for different labs, but at least in my lab, um, you know, we have uh, when we're, for example, writing code for for um, to do data analysis, uh, there will be a whole bunch of code that has to do with cleaning the data and organizing it and like getting it in the form that we want to work with. And then a relatively short chunk that is related to like actually doing the analyses. Mm-hmm. And so even if a student doesn't know how to run linear mixed effects models, if they know about data wrangling, they can check that first chunk, right? Mm-hmm, so then it's mm-hmm. just like the data wrangling chunk that is that is unknown um, or, or like hasn't been checked yet. And yeah, this this hasn't actually happened in my lab, but if it were the case that like 
I was writing the code and I was the only one who actually knew how to do the data analysis. Um, and I had somebody check everything leading up to it. I would, I would talk to a stats prof or talk to, you know, a colleague who, who does similar things, um, to, to ask them just about the, the model portion of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's a much, that's a much easier ask than like, Hey, will you check all 500 lines of my code? It's sure, like, sure. Hey, just, am I comparing the models in the right way or, or something like that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, but I would say like, if there's only one person who, who understands how to do the technique, um, that would make me nervous. Um, sure. and, and different labs are going to be different in all of that, but, but, but that would make me nervous because, um, there's only one person who thinks they know how to do the technique mm-hmm, is another mm-hmm. way of, of framing that. Right. Mm-hmm. And if, if I'm going to put my name on something and my lab's name on something, um, I want to be really sure about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I bring, I bring that up like selfishly because I think about it, but I, I think even if people aren't aware of it, that like implicitly that's a barrier. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think anyway, just trying to, trying to name that as like, yes, that's a challenge, but like it's, there are ways to overcome it, but they might not yeah. be easy ways, right? Like yeah, yeah. getting, getting an external help or training more people in your lab or doing a different technique that's easier to verify. Like those are all, those are all their options potentially. Yep. Or, or, you know, trying to verify the results in another way. So mm-hmm. you can't do the fancy stats on it, but you can do the hacky stats on it and they render the same outcome. You know, mm-hmm. that at least gives some confidence that, that the major conclusions aren't wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, because I've been burned once, I feel like um, my tendency is to kind of err on the super cautious side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I kind of feel like that's a really good side to err on. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. 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 One of the other things that I like about um, cultivating a culture of looking for problems and, and the idea that the quality of work is a shared responsibility um, is that it indicates to students, to trainees, that, that looking for errors is not an indication that you don't trust them, mm-hmm. right? So if I say, hey, do you mind if I check your data? Do you mind if I check your code or look at your data or, you know, see how you did that? Um, that they don't say, oh, gosh, does she think I screwed it up? Does she not trust me? But they think, oh, yeah, now we look for errors. This is what we do. Um, and so it doesn't make people feel bad when you look for them. And hopefully it doesn't make people feel terrible about themselves and their ability to do science. Uh, when you found that they've made mistakes, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Because most of us will. And when we find it, you know, the options are our egos are crushed and we don't want to do this anymore. Or we think, well, shoot, yeah, this is a, this has been a failure of our system. Let's figure out how to, how to improve that system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, this also goes to what you were talking about before about, you know, asking about adverse events and figuring out how you can deal with them. Um, if a student of mine finds that they have made a mistake, even if it is a terrible, tremendous, we have to retract a bunch of papers mistake, uh, I don't want them to hesitate before they tell me, mm-hmm. right? I don't want mm-hmm. them to think, oh, Julia's going to think I'm a bad scientist or pick me out of the lab or not like me anymore or any of that. Um, and, and so one of the reasons I like talking about making mistakes and how to not make mistakes and what we do when we do make mistakes um, a lot is to just normalize that Mistakes are a thing that happens and it doesn't make you a bad person or a bad scientist um, because I, I want it to be okay for us to all fess up when we make those mistakes. And mm-hmm. I want it to be okay when we make to, to fess up, um, you know, both in my lab for my students. I also want it to be okay publicly, right? I want to be, want to make it easier for people when they find that they have made a mistake in something big that is published or, you know, out in the world somehow that, that 
it's also not like a naming and blaming and shaming culture of you mm-hmm. believe so-and-so made a mistake. Well, you talked about that. I mean, so we do have um, a, a podcast episode on uh, where you talk, I mean, you've written about this too, but then also you talked here about about your experience and, and you sort of said one of the challenges was not having like examples of what happens when people find a mistake in a published paper and that makes mm-hmm. it like super scary. And so it, it's like the meta, anyway, there's that level of, and there's also within your lab of cultivating the same culture where like there are examples of where you find mistakes and like it, it's okay and it's like a good thing, right? Like better to find mm-hmm. it now than later or like just have it be wrong. Um, yep. So I think that that makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Also having this, culture of, of like looking for problems and talking about the ways to avoid them. Um, I think also helps frame mistakes as what they are. Um, this is a quote out of that, the Jeff Router paper that the mistakes should be interpreted as uh, reflecting a failure of systems rather than a failure of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The expectation should be that people, especially when they're sleepy and stressed and rushing are going to screw things up. And so, of course, it's nice when they don't, but, like, we can't count on that they won't. So we have to come up with ways of changing our systems in order to catch those mistakes mm-hmm. um, rather than just counting on people to, you know, be real careful this time. <laughs> right. Yeah. One of the I, – I, I know you you mentioned this. I'm sure you've seen this, but not everyone might have heard about this. One of the – I don't know, mind-boggling examples of this is not from our field, but it's the um, challenge of using gene names oh, in an geez. Excel sheet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so I, and I, 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 I don't work with genetic data a lot, but Excel apparently will, um, under some circumstances, reformat your gene names. And if you reformat a gene name, you actually change the gene name. And, and so there, there was a famous study that found like 20% of papers that published gene names were like were wrong or had some erroneous data something like that which is crazy and people obviously don't know that or yeah. at the time so that's a that's a big one yeah um so the the hope is that that erotite is a way that labs can think through where in their research flow the errors are going to happen um and then and, and basically do this <laughs> Um, okay. So Jonathan talked about like, you have an adverse event and then you talk about how to do it better next time. The idea is I'm going to give you a list of a bunch of adverse events that haven't yet happened to you. And you figure out how to do them, you know, how to, how to avoid letting them happen. Mm -hmm. Um, so that you don't have to make those mistakes yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, we can talk about, we can talk about like changing, we can talk about changing culture so that we're more willing to accept mistakes. And I think that's really important. Um, but I would also just like to save everybody from the heartache and frustration and lost time and lost money and all of that. So, um, so that was kind of the, the impetus in, in writing this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, also at errortight.com, there is a form that you can fill out, uh, that asks for bonehead moves of your own. So mistakes that, that you have made. Um, and I'm very grateful to everyone who has already submitted those and I'm very happy to, to, to keep getting those. Um, and I, I'm going to continue to update error type as, as more of those come in. Um, because the, the examples that I have used, you know, are mostly from my research area, but, um, but there's 
lots of other ones that I haven't thought of or, or, or haven't heard of. And so it's great to get those. Um, and there's also a form uh, on the website there where you can leave feedback uh, if you have used error type in your own lab. Um, and so if you have gone through the exercises and talked through it and thought of things that I didn't think of or thought that things I did think of didn't make sense or, or work for you, I'd also really be, be grateful for those. I'm planning to um, to revise this and, and continue to update it based on feedback from the community. So if you uh, do this with your lab group and, hey, you know, new academic year, time to go back to school, maybe a time to think about changing some practices, um, I would love to hear from you. So please, uh, errortype.com, let me know, let me know how it goes. Have you, um, I mean, obviously you put all this together, but, um, uh, anyway, yeah. What was, did you do brainstorming with your lab and what was that experience like for them? Do you think? Yeah. So I've, um, I've talked through it with some of the students in my lab. We haven't, we haven't gone through it officially as, as a full lab, um, in part because I wanted to wait until this fall when we are back in person mm-hmm. um, and we're like actually collecting data again and things like that. Um, I had a bunch of new students in the lab this year and it kind of didn't make sense to, to, to work through it with everyone until they had actually seen how data collection works. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've gotten, I've, I've uh, talked through it with some of the more senior students and um and yeah, they had they had great ideas about ways that things could go wrong, and, and especially things that like almost went wrong and they caught, but like didn't rise to the level of like they had to tell me about. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, oh, I had no idea that was a thing that could that could go wrong. Thanks, you know, thanks thanks for catching those. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really really useful to get their input. Also, I mean, I feel like everybody everybody who's gone through this and, and talked to me, it's been it's been useful to get their input. Well, we have yeah. not done it um, in my lab yet, but I'm planning on doing it this year. So I'm, we, we can do like a follow up in uh, whatever Ooh, after yeah. after we're all back and we, we've tried it and see how that goes. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so listeners, check it out. I mean, if it's relevant for you and sounds interesting, I would be very grateful to have your feedback. There's one other um, um, uh, link here, which I don't think you have in there, but I, I'm sure you've experienced. And that's the publishing part of this, that you can submit a perfect manuscript, but in copy editing, it can also get messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, my um, PhD advisor, would, whenever we got proofs back, would always, uh, we would sit there together and one of us would read what we submitted and the other one would have the the proof and we'd go through word by word and and make sure nothing was messed up. And I have to tell you, I have not done that on every paper, but um, several times I have not done it. I've then regretted it. There have not been any like scientific errors, but there have been lots of other um, errors or just things that were worse for having been changed. And I, I, I certainly know friends who've had like, numbers and stats messed up uh Mm -hmm. in in the publishing process so that's another um example of that but that's you know anyway it feels like it's out of our hands but also uh you know you don't want the published version to be wrong yeah well and and now there are ways that you can do like side-by-side text comparisons Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so so we'll use those online where we like you know put in a paragraph of the original paper put in a paragraph of of the you know of the quote-unquote new paper um, the copy edited version. Um, and then it just, you know, highlights in red, anything that's different. Mm-hmm. Um, ooh, what is the one that we use called? So I can tell you about it. Oh, that'd be it. great. Cause I'd like to try it. Well, the other funny thing uh, is, yeah, go ahead. Tell diff me. Checker. Diff D-I-F-F checker. D I F F checker. Um, and 
Uh, oh, it looks like you might have to pay for it now. Oh, no, no. You can still just do it online. Okay. Um, yeah, and it's really useful. Uh, it gets a little funky with, you know, formatting and page numbers and line numbers and whatever, depending on, on how you're submitting it. But if you just do, like, a paragraph at a time, it, it tends to work pretty mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, we one time... Oh, can I just say, occasionally journals, which I like in principle, will give you a tracked changes version where they say, oh, here's all the stuff we changed. But then Uh I've had that where that is not accurate. We're like, (laughs) they didn't track all the changes. So anyway, Mm. I would just, um, anyway, I I don't mean to get off on a soapbox because that's not the point of this whole thing. But also just don't trust, don't trust the journals. (laughs) <laughs> One time, our my best horror story is we had a paper um, that had some modeling and had a lot of equations in it. Mm-hmm. And one of the equations, the way that it was formatted, wouldn't fit on one line. Uh, and so they added a hyphen in the equation to indicate that the equation continued on the next line. But so there was just an extra minus sign. Uh-huh. Luckily, uh-huh. we caught that and they were able to do it. But I was like, no, no, you can't. If it's numbers, you can just hyphenate. That means something. <laughs> but which, but which, it's actually a good illustration of this in a way because. To you, this is obvious, and and to someone right. else, it wasn't, and so yeah. you just have to you have to check and and not assume it's going to be it's going to be fine. Yeah, you have to check and not assume it's going to be fine. It's kind of the the, the theme of the theme of the episode. Today. Is, is that our title? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and other things you can do while you're checking out diffchecker.com and at errortype.com are go to juiceandsqueeze.net and uh put in your contact info and let us know where you would like your listener sticker shipped to. And if you contacted us in the last four months and we haven't gotten back to you, um, I'm sorry. Um, We're going to, and I'm (laughs) sorry. I was, I was busy doing P1F and now I'm going to get back to you. I was moving. Julia was doing P1F. uh, uh, Anyway. So we, we do appreciate all of you guys listening. And um, anyway, hopefully we will not be gone for so long. Now, I think we'll be able to record regularly during during this, the upcoming yeah. term, right? Yeah. So that's the plan. Absolutely. And, yep. and if there are things um, you want to hear about, um, things you'd like us to discuss, please drop a note on the on the website, too. And we're really grateful for listener input about uh, what you want to know about. Yep. And, and all the, as always, the links are, are there. And this is episode 41. So juiceandsqueeze.net slash 41. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye.